I invite you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 46. This is the third sermon in our series, uh, Christmas Through Mary's Eyes. And we'll be looking here at Mary's song here in verse 46 to 57. Hear now the word of the Lord. Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm, and he has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, and he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Father, we ask now that you would, uh, by your Spirit, awaken us to the truths of this text, that we too would rejoice in our Savior, in Christ's name, amen. Well, Mary's journey began with the Annunciation, and when the angel made the announcement that she would give birth to the, the, the long-awaited Messiah. And last week, we studied the visitation where Mary left Nazareth and sought communion with her cousin Elizabeth in Judah. It was then that we heard that first Christmas song sung by Elizabeth, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. It was there in that little uh, house church, we may say, Mary was there, Elizabeth is there, John in the womb of Elizabeth is there, and they all three rejoice in the presence of their Savior, Jesus. And so the scene shifted from Nazareth to Judah. As we learned last week, Mary is obviously overwhelmed by these announcements, by the angel saying in the news that she heard concerning the birth of this baby. She knew the reaction people would have to her pregnancy, and so she leaves Nazareth for Judah. Remember, she's a teenage girl living in a culture that stones people to death for committing adultery, which all would have thought she had done. And so she leaves her parents, she leaves her family, she leaves her friends, and she makes this dangerous journey. It's over 100 miles from Nazareth to Judah to Elizabeth, her cousin. And and the truth, it was probably longer than 100 miles. She likely would have avoided going straight through Samaria and went around it. And so she makes this dangerous journey. And so let me ask the question, what do you think is going through this teenager's mind as she traveled those 100-plus miles to Judah to see Elizabeth? What is she thinking about? Well, of course, we know she's pondering. We're told that in the earliest verses, verse 29. We know she's a thinker. She's pondering, and so she's likely pondering, seeking to have a better understanding, maybe a better grasp of what what the angel had said to her when she met that angel. She's probably still just amazed at the fact that she got to meet Gabriel, the angel. Of course, she's thinking of Joseph, 
her, her, she's bound to for marriage, wondering if the marriage will now be called off when the news gets out. I'm sure at this time, fear is gripping her heart and tears are, are, are flowing from her eyes as she considered this whole new situation she finds herself in and how people are likely to respond. That is likely what's going through her mind. All those things are true. However, I believe what filled her heart the most, what, what Mary was thinking about the nose, and I, I know we're not told this, but I, I believe it, what filled her heart, what occupied her mind was the Old Testament. It was the Old Testament Scriptures. When, what, what comforted Mary at this crucial time in the midst of this tsunami of emotions, in the midst of this tsunami of thoughts, emotions and thoughts that could very easily overwhelm a young, lonely, isolated teenage girl, I believe what gave Mary the strength to take each step from Nazareth to Judah was the Word of God. It was the promises of God. It was the revelation uh, of the history of God's redemptive acts throughout her history and way earlier. It, it would have been the scriptures that she would have memorized and known and been taught as a child right up to the very day of Gabriel's announcement. Now, I said we're not told this, but I believe this is true because of the song that she sings in verses 46 to 55. Mary's song, which is known as the Magnificat, gets its title from the Latin translation of the opening words found in verse 46, my soul magnifies. It's the second song recorded in Luke's gospel, if we, if we believe that Elizabeth's poem was a song, but it's the first of what is known as the first four great nativity hymns. They're all recorded in Luke. The second, the first is Mary's here that we're looking at, the Magnificat. The second is Zachariah's Benedictus, which means blessing, which gets its title from verse 68, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. And then there's another song that we know, glory to God in the highest. It's the angel's Gloria, which gets its title from chapter 2, verse 14, glory to God in the highest. And then the fourth is Simeon's song. Uh, of to send away, which gets its title from chapter 2, verse 28. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. And, and so those four songs are great nativity hymns, and it begins here with Mary's hymn. Now, it's written in the form of poetry because poetry is this heightened form of expression that it forces us to kind of slow down it causes us to ponder, says Phil Riken, so we can savor and celebrate the salvation we have in Christ. And so Mary's song helps us to reflect upon and it helps us to meditate upon the truths revealed in the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's a psalm, a New Testament psalm of sorts that leads us into praise for God and our Savior. And Mary... In this song, most unbelieving scholars, and we shouldn't be surprised at this, Mary, uh, people say Mary couldn't have written this psalm. 
or this prose. She couldn't have written this song. They didn't believe she was smart enough. She was, only, she was too young to do it. But see, what happens with most unbelieving scholars is they deny, in fact, all of them do, deny the inspiration of Scripture and the Holy Spirit directing Mary. And not only that, more to the point, what I just said, they fail to recognize that Mary would have known the Word of God she would have had it memorized. Uh, she, she, she knew her Old Testament history, and, and, and she puts it into song. See, what's most impressive about this hymn of praise is that it's saturated with Scripture. Now, we, we don't know if Mary wrote this on the way to see Elizabeth or if the Holy Spirit now at this point just spontaneously inspired her to sing it at this moment. But what we do know for sure is Mary's deep knowledge of Scripture gave her the resources she needed to craft this beautiful hymn. It was her knowledge of Scripture that came to mind when she thought of praising God. This is why I say it was the Scripture she was pondering when she decided to take this, this journey. It was central to Mary's life. And when we turn to this song, we see just how central it was. Throughout the hymn, we find allusions to several Old Testament texts, several Old Testament stories. There's a song, Hannah's song, found in 1 Samuel 2. It, it reflects on that. There are quotes and allusions from Genesis and Deuteronomy and 1 and 2 Samuel. She quotes Job and Psalms and Isaiah. She quotes Ezekiel, Micah, Habakkuk, and Zephaniah. See, Mary was able to do this because the Word of God wasn't just something she found in a book, in her time, a scroll. It was part of her very being. She was raised on the Scripture. She, she, she sang the Scripture. She was taught the Scripture at home. She would have been taught it in the synagogue. She meditated upon it. She pondered it. She stored the Word of God up in her heart. And so here she is overwhelmed with the situation as she's now swept away into redemptive history. The first words out of her mouth were God's words. See, the situation she was in, as you know, merited a song. It warranted a song. And what came natural to Mary was to sing the Bible. And so out of this treasure trove of biblical knowledge... She brings forth this hymn of praise. And see, here's another lesson. We've learned several about Mary throughout this series. Here's another lesson. We can never go wrong when we're addressing God, when we're addressing Him in prayer or even in praise, in worship and singing, that is, than to speak back to Him His word. Yeah, I had a professor, you, you probably recognize the name of the late, great R.C. Sproul, if you haven't heard his name, he's probably one of the greatest Reformed teachers and professors of our generation. He passed some years ago. Well, many years ago, he was teaching at Reformed Theological Seminary in Mississippi, and he would have his students stand up before the class began and have them pray. And um, I, I can't remember if he did this in our class, but if I knew this story, I wouldn't have ever prayed. After each prayer, Dr. Sproul would critique their prayer pointing out the various heretical statements they would make, the students would innocently pray during the course of their prayers. 
And so whenever a, a student was asked to stand up and pray, they would do so with fear and trepidation. Well, after a few weeks, one of the students caught on, and he was asked to pray, and, and rememorizing how humbling it was for the other students, he stood there and he said, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And then he sat down. See, he believed Dr. Sproul was a great theologian, uh, maybe one of the best that he'd ever met, but he knew that he couldn't critique the Lord's Prayer. And, and see, that's the point. When it comes to prayer, into our context, when it comes to praise, then uh, the worship of God, when we gather here like this or when you're doing it on your own, you must be sure that the, the songs you are singing are saturated with Scripture. They're, they're to teach you the truth found in the Bible. Luther said music is the handmaiden to theology. You know, this is what makes Handel's Messiah so amazing. While we're still playing it, singing it today. It's a teaching tool. It's beautiful music, of course, we know that, but it's also filled with direct quotes from the Scripture, all these biblical allusions throughout guiding us through. If you pay attention, it guides you through the birth and the life and the death and the resurrection of Christ. It's saturated with Scripture. It's why we sing the hymns that we sing here, because they're filled with sound doctrine and meaty theology. It's why we avoid, we have, a, we have a whole book of praise songs that we sing, but we avoid some of them, some that I may sing at home and even play at home, but, but they're, 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 not, they're not appropriate for corporate worship when, when, you're, when you're singing to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. They're not filled with Scripture. They avoid Scripture. They're more about us and how we feel. And so they're not suitable when we're singing about the miraculous virgin birth of Jesus, our Savior, when we're singing about his life, when we're singing about his death and resurrection. They're not suitable for Christian worship of an almighty God. They're not wrong. Sing them at home, but when you gather on the Lord's Day to, to sing to Almighty God, we need to make sure that our scripture, our, our songs are filled with scripture and sound theology. See, it's just as important when you're praying, and it's just as important when you're singing as it is when I'm preaching that we're faithful to the Word. I think I told this story already to you before, but uh, when I was uh, uh, a Bible college student had a professor that would spoke at a, a gospel camp, and he was asked to go, and he sat, and he was waiting to get up and speak, and they sung all their songs, and when they got done, he stood up, and he said, I just want to say this, that if I were to preach what you just sang, you'd throw me out of here as a heretic. That's how bad the songs were. And so we need to know the Word of God because our songs need to be based on the Word of God. We're not just singing to a buddy. We're singing to God. And so for that to be true, we need to know the Word. We need to read the Scripture. We need to pray the Scripture. We need to sing the Scripture. We need to preach the Scripture. We need to memorize the Scripture. We need to study the Scripture. We need to know the story of redemption as it begins in Genesis and ends in Revelation. We need to be able to recall these stories um, in our time of need in order to be strengthened as Mary did. You see, when, when we learn the Scripture, our understanding of God is enlarged. 
Oh, we all know something about God. We wouldn't be here at all, most likely. We know something about God. But that's what Mary does here. Look at verse 46 and 47. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Now, Mary's using a poetic device here called parallelism. She's saying the same thing in two different ways. First, she says, my soul magnifies the Lord. And then she says, my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Soul and spirit are not two separate parts. Um, They refer to the inner being. They're not two separate entities. Mary is saying in a poetically powerful way, my total self, all that I am from within, magnifies and praise the Lord. And see, that word magnifies means enlarge. It means to make great. Mary cannot make God any greater, can she? No. But God can be enlarged in her own life. And that is what Mary means. She wanted God to be seen. In her life, she wanted God to be seen as great. She didn't want to see herself seen as great. She knew she was blessed because of God, and so she magnifies God. Ken Hughes says, we magnify or enlarge God when we take into our thinking some new aspect of his greatness. And and that's always happening. You should always be growing in that way. And in this song, Mary praised God for many of his divine attributes. She, she, She worshiped him, look at verse 49, for his mighty power. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. And again in verse 51, he has shown strength with his arm. It's a way of saying God is powerful. Second, she, she honored him for his holiness. Look at verse 49. And holy is his name. And he's speaking of her son. Third, she magnified his mercy for sinners. Verse 50. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. And, ver- and fourth, she praised him for his faithfulness. He has helped his servant Israel and in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, his covenantal faithfulness to Abraham and to his offspring forever, verse 55. See, Mary isn't dwelling here. She's singing. She, she just got, she's told that she's going to give birth to the Messiah and it's going to be a virgin birth. And, and, and she visits Elizabeth and Elizabeth writes this song about her son and she's, she's got this song and she's not dwelling on her own blessed circumstances, is she? She's rejoicing in be, the being in the character of God and in doing so, her understanding of God is enlarged. He became greater and she became lesser. And so here we're reminded once again of Mary's humility. In fact, the whole song here revolves around the idea of humility. The first half, verse 46 to 50, are about God exalting the humble. And the second half, verse 51 to 55, is about God humbling the proud. Look at the first half, beginning at verse 48. God reaches down in his mercy to the humble, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. Uh, Verse 50, his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Fear means who have reverence for him, who have awe for him. Those who have reverence and awe for God are those who honor him for who he is. He's the mighty, holy, merciful, and faithful God. That's who Mary's praising. And, and, And so the way God worked in Mary's life is the same way he deals with you and he deals with me. In our humble estate, he will exalt us. You know, we, we, we all go through struggles. 
We all have limitations, things that humble us, uh, some of us more than others. But, but you're, you're haunted sometimes of the things of your past, or perhaps you're in this low condition spiritually or emotionally or mentally, and you're struggling and feeling defeated. Uh, you try, you, I'm a Christian, I believe, but you go to battle with the world, the flesh, and the devil, and you seem like you're always losing. And how, how do you respond to that? Well, you're, you're not to get angry. You don't complain. You don't wallow in your distress. Humbly, you are to turn to the Lord in your lowest state while we were yet sinners. In our humility, we turn to the Lord, and James tells us he will exalt us. So does the psalmist. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. That's God's promise to you. Everyone here that believes he is always ready to show his mercy to the helpless, verse 51. He is always ready to show his mercy to the humble, verse 52. He is always ready to show his mercy to the hungry, verse 53. That is who recognize, all the people who recognize that the desperate estate they're in, he will rescue them and exalt them. But... The same way God exalts the humble, he also humbles the proud. Look at verse 51 to 55. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. He has spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, to his offspring forever. Notice what Mary does here in this song. She moves from the personal to the national. She goes beyond what God has done for her and rejoices in what God is doing for the nation. And so do you see it? She teaches us, yes, the importance of knowing Scripture. She teaches us that our singing and our prayers should be saturated with the Bible. She, she teaches us the importance of being humble. She also teaches us this, that it's not about us. It's not about us. It's about God's faithfulness from generation to generation. Verse 54 and 55, he has helped his servant Israel. He spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, to his offspring forever. See, Mary teaches, one scholar says, Mary teaches us that a healthy Christian, we, we want to be healthy Christians, right? Who knows the word, a healthy Christian who knows the word and is humbled is also a Christian who views themselves as part of God's people and part of what God has been doing in the past, in the present, and, and, and they'll be doing in the future. Mary's not self-centered here. She is centered on the church. She's centered on God's redemptive plan. She realizes that she, especially her, right, giving birth to the Savior, that she's caught into something bigger than herself. And, and this is an important lesson for us to learn. Uh, one pastor says, I think one of the things that is missing in the kind of Christianity that we often, not always, but often see on television preachers, is that it's all focused on our attaining our own personal success. Listen long enough and you'll say, this is really a, has a lot to do with me. I'm the center of it all. Uh, my desires need to be fulfilled. And, and that's what God's here. You know, it's Christmas. So God's like the big Santa Claus in this guy, just bestowing gifts to make my life wonderful. 
And, 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 and when you listen to that, you sense that there's nothing really bigger than me. There's nothing beyond me that's important, like God's plan or God's mission that I'm part of and God's family and God's people. But see, that's the truth. Those things are bigger than us. And so understand, God may be calling you, and, and he may be calling me to suffer, which doesn't fit in in a lot of the television preachers, but he may be doing it for the sake of his plan, which is greater than me, his mission, which is greater than me, his family, which is greater than me, and his people, the church. Have you ever thought of Christianity in that way? You know, it's just not about me. That I, and in fact, it's, since it's not about me, he may cause me to suffer for the sake of others. That you should embrace it then. Why? Because it has a, a, a greater cause. You rejoice in it for the sake of Christ's kingdom and God's glory. See, because of that, because you're suffering maybe, the cross you've taken up, it's a blessing, not a curse. It may be the very reason God brought the trial in your life is for the sake of others, for the sake of the church. Paul said this. The apostle says, now I rejoice in my sufferings. How many of you say that? I told you before I stubbed my toe and the whole world's falling apart. You know, but, but I rejoice in my sufferings. I, Read the scriptures and you'll see what Paul's sufferings were. They weren't just stubbed toes. And I do it for your sake, he says. And in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Why? For the sake of his body, that is the church. I rejoice in my sufferings because they're for something greater. And and, and I'm not the center of the universe. See, such a view of suffering will change the way you pray about suffering. I, 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 it puts it in a different light. When we go and pray, we went this Saturday to visit people that are in great pain, people that are suffering, people that may be facing death. And what do we pray? We pray they'd be healed. There's nothing wrong with that. We should do that. Pray for their healing. That's the first thing, and it's usually the last thing we think of when we pray. Remove the pain. Remove the pain. But in addition to that, we should probably pray, Lord, how can their lowly estate, the position they're in, the struggle they're having, exalt you, Lord? Use this situation to exalt you, to, to further your purposes, Lord. Use this situation, the cause of the suffering, use it for the sake of your church. And, and that's what we see here. See, I hope you understand, it's not about your best life now. I know there's popular books, bestsellers, under the Christian title that say that. It's foolishness. Mary understood that, and it's a lesson we must all learn. It's a lesson we must learn. If we're going to be able to say with Mary, no matter the circumstances, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, then the lesson must be learned and embraced. It's not about me. It's not about me. Well, looking back, what's interesting here in in this song is it's all in the past tense. Verse 51, he has shown. He already shown me. He's already scattered. He's already brought down, verse 52. He's already filled. He's sent away, verse 53, and he has helped, verse 54. 
Now, if we take this to mean it's just a past tense, right? He's talking about things that happened a while ago. Mary was simply remembering all the great things God did. Remember when he showed his strength, uh, he showed his strength to, by drowning Pharaoh. She's thinking of that maybe. And he scattered the proud Philistines when he, when he, when he struck down Goliath. Nebuchadnezzar, you could go through church history and you could see in the past, during the Old Testament, all these things. She's reciting God's past acts, but that's not all she's doing. See, see, Bible scholars recognize this is what's called basically a prophetic past tense. What does that mean? It means that she views the future work of God, what God's going to do in the future, as already done, already accomplished by God. Mary the singer is now a prophet, and, and, and she is praising God for what he'll do through his, her son, Jesus. She was speaking in the past tense, but was making prophecies about the future. What this section of the song tells us is that there's going to be this complete reversal of human values at some point in history, but it's so surely going to come to place that she speaks in the past tense. It's done. And Mary describes it, or we should say sings it, as though the unborn babe had already accomplished everything he was going to accomplish on the earth. Do you see the reversal? It's not the proud or mighty or rich who will have the last word. It seems like that's going to happen. The proud who scheme and plan will have their thoughts scattered, we're told. The mighty kings will be removed from their thrones. The rich will be turned away. And what will happen? It'll be, as I said, the helpless, the humble, those who are spiritually hungry who will be exalted. That day is coming. We don't see it now. We shouldn't expect it now until the Lord returns. But see, as Mary looked across history... She sang prophetically of the mighty reversals that her son would bring into the world, that he would accomplish the moral changes, the social and the spiritual reversals. And with the birth of Christ, those things had already began. The reversals had taken place, and God's choice of Mary proved it. He was exalting this humble young girl, and soon he would bring low the proud. And so in summary, Mary's song spans the past, it spans the present, and it goes into the future. It's about what God has done, what God is doing, and what God will do in and through this child that was born. And so let me close by addressing you, the the individual. And that's the last lesson we learned. We heard the importance of the word. We, should, we know that. I, I talk about it all the time. The importance of singing Bible-saturated songs. The fact that we have to be humble, knowing we are part of something bigger, that it's not about ourselves. We have learned that a day is coming, has already begun, but it's coming when God will turn the world on its head. The humble will be exalted and the proud will be, be humbled. And the last lesson we learned from Mary in her song is this, that it's all about the gospel. It's all about the gospel. You notice this song has nothing whatsoever to say about what we do, what we accomplish. 
It has nothing to do with us. It has everything to do with the fact that God has done it all and he saves us. It's about what God has done for the salvation of his people. Mary is singing here about the good news. She's singing about the gospel. We fully understand it, this side of the cross and the resurrection, but she's singing about it. She's excited about the gospel. She's rejoicing in the gospel. She is seeing the gospel unfold before her eyes. Why? Because the gospel is the good news, but the gospel is what Jesus does. It's not what I do in response to it. It's what Jesus does. And her response in light of that gospel is not to say, look, I'll do this, this, and this. It's to praise God for it and just simply rest in it and believe it. And see, in doing this, she reminds us, she should remind you that the Christian life is based on, it, it, the foundation of it is the gospel, the good news of what God has done in his grace to save us from our sin. Here's the good news. This is the gospel. The gospel is this, Paul says it, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of the woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law so that me might receive adoption as sons. Why did Jesus come? Why, why do we celebrate Christmas? Well, there, there's a lot of different reasons I, in the scripture. Here's the main one. So that we could receive adoption as sons. So that those of us who were, every one of us at one point, enemies of God become children of God. The gospel is God extending his undeserved mercy to those who are helpless and those who are humble and those who, who are lost. The gospel is the outworking of something that took place all the way back in Genesis. The Abrahamic covenant, which Mary sees as being fulfilled at this point. Think about that. She, she knew the stories. We know the stories. We know about Genesis. We know about Abraham. And Mary is right here in redemptive history, and she's saying, it's being fulfilled. The time has come. In remembrance of his mercy, verse 54, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, to his offspring forever. The promise of Abraham is the promise of salvation by grace through faith alone. And that's why Paul, when he's talking about how we're saved, when he talks about the gospel, he points back to Abraham. Through Jesus' birth, through his sinless life, through his substitutionary death, through his bodily resurrection, humble sinners, helpless sinners can be reconciled to God. And Mary, Mary is rejoicing over that knowledge. And so the question is, can you sing that song? Can you join her? Can you sing this song and actually mean it? My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in who? God, my Savior. Can you say that? That's what Christmas is all about. It points beyond the birth and the manger and the stories that we all love, and it points to the whole life and the whole death, and the whole resurrection of Christ, and says that you can be saved by God's grace through faith alone because of what Christ accomplished. All you have to do is receive it. And so join Mary this Christmas and rejoice in your Savior God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we humbly submit to you, we recognize that we get caught up in 
the festivities of the season. In fact, we get caught up in the things of this world generally and our delight, our joy, our rejoicing is often not found in, in Christ's birth and life and death and resurrection. It's found in the things of this world. Redirect and reorient our hearts that we may give all praise to you and thanks. In Jesus' name, amen.